Well, are you glad to be here today? I am. <laughs> Good to be with you after being out uh, last Sunday. Appreciate Brother David preaching in my absence. I understand he did a really good job. Did he? Yeah. Um, uh, my recuperation from surgery is going well. Uh, not all my energy back, still a little soreness. So I'm going to be sitting some today to kind of pace myself, but uh, it's going well and I appreciate your prayers and different expressions of of uh, love and kindness. Thank you so much for that. I also appreciate your prayers for Steve White and uh, his family and the passing of his uh, mother. He's on his way back from Tennessee and will be with us next Sunday. So thank you for praying for him and his family his family as, as well. Well, we're continuing the sermon series titled, It's All Gods. The idea that everything in the universe belongs to God, and that includes us and, that, and, and everything that's a part of, of our life. And, and we said when I started this a couple of weeks ago that the essence, the heart of humanity's problem and, and at the very core of, of the problems that most of us encounter is, is our struggle to acknowledge God's rightful place in the universe and accept our true place in this universe and in relation to God. And that humanity and that many of us individually are in this battle with God about God being the author of, of creation, that God is the one who, who owns everything, including us. And some of us just struggle with that because we want to be the master of our own destiny. We want to be in control. We want to be the boss. And so we're, we're looking at different biblical teachings to help us understand the connection between us and God. What is God's rightful place and what is, what is our true place in the universe? And we started by saying that God created the universe and everything in it, including us. And as the one who created it, therefore, he is the one who owns all of it. Last Sunday, Brother David preached from that passage in 1 Corinthians that tells us our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price, and therefore we are to glorify God in our body. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, he purchased our freedom from sin, from the grave, from death, from hell, from Satan. And those of us who are Christians are twice bought, if you will, belonging to God because he created us, and we belong to the Lord because he's our Savior and redeemed us on the cross. Well, this morning I want to help us understand our connection with God, who God is and who we are in terms of that relationship from a different angle. And I want to do that by talking about taxes and money. Those are things that strike a nerve with most people. And Jesus had some things to say about it that can help us better understand the connection between us and God. Now, I want to tell you, coming up next year, 2014, a really big day, a really big day next year is April 18. Now, it's not April 15 when you have to file your taxes, okay? April 18. Because April 18 next year is the day when the average American will have worked long enough to pay all the taxes he owes. When you think of all the taxes we pay, the average American has to work from January 1 to April 18, and every dime he or she earns in that three and a half months 
goes to pay taxes. Now, since it's the average, that means some people work fewer days. They don't pay as much. And other people have to work a lot longer because they pay a lot more. The average American on April 18 will have worked long enough to pay all the taxes. Uh, and for those of you who are younger and uh, uh, you haven't earned a lot of paychecks and paid a lot of taxes, your wake-up day is coming. <laughs> when you get that first big check and you look at it and say, well, what, they, they get that much? Taxes is a sensitive issue. In fact, the average American pays about 30%, give or take, of his or her income in taxes. Federal income tax, state income tax, city tax, social security tax, you know, workman's comp, Medicare taxes, property taxes, sales tax, inheritance tax, government taxes you when you die, tax on your gasoline at the pump, accommodations tax when you spend a night in a hotel or a motel, tax on your phone bill, tax on your cable TV bill, taxes when you get a permit or purchase a license to build or do something, utility taxes, so your your gas bill and your electric bill, taxes on that, sin taxes, taxes on cigarettes and taxes on alcohol and on and on and on and on I could go, all the taxes that people pay. Well, the the... The controversy about taxes is not new. It's been around a long time. Jesus had an experience we're going to study this morning when some people came to him and asked him a question about paying taxes. The way he answered their question tells us a lot about our connection to God. It's interesting how he took a question about taxes and did some teaching that was profound and eternal and really, really deep. So I invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 22. We're going to study the story that's found in that chapter. Now, here's the background you need to understand. Um, The Jewish people, their country of Judea, was not a free country. They had been conquered by the Romans. And therefore, the Romans taxed the Jews. So it's like a, it'd be like China or Russia conquering America and then taxing us as citizens. And that was controversial. The most conservative religious group in Judaism was the Pharisees. They hated the Romans and they hated paying the taxes. There was another political group called the Herodians who wanted to keep positive, peaceful relationships with the Romans, and they encouraged people to pay the tax. They thought it was a good thing. So these groups were philosophically at odds with one another. Just imagine the Democrats and the Republicans in Congress right now. Now, That'll give you a picture, okay? And they get together. Did you hear that? They get These two groups get together because they have a common enemy. Jesus. Jesus is becoming too popular. They want to diminish his popularity with at least some of the people. And so they come up with this question that's a trick question, and they're thinking that no matter how Jesus answers this, he's going to alienate some people who are listening to him, and his popularity will begin to, you know, diminish. So with that information in mind, The story is found in Matthew 22, beginning at verse 15. 
the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him, trap Jesus in what he said. So they weren't asking Jesus a question out of sincerity, wanting to know. They, they were asking him a question because they wanted to get him in trouble. They wanted to trick him. And so that's what they're about. Verse 16, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So the, here's, here's the Republicans and the Democrats getting together, agreeing on, an, on something they're wanting to accomplish. The Herodians and the Pharisees, they want to get Jesus in trouble, make him say something that will be unpopular with at least some of the people. And so they come to Jesus and they begin to butter him up. Always be careful when somebody butters you up. They said, teacher, we know that you are truthful. You never, you never lie, Jesus. You always tell the truth. You teach the way of God in truth. You, you tell it like it is no matter what. You don't compromise the truth. You defer to no one. You're not partial to any. You're not worrying about who you offend and don't offend. You're not, you're not trying to please people. You just tell the truth. And wherever the chips fall, that's where they fall. You're a man of God. There's such hypocrisy in everything they're saying because they don't believe he's of God at all. But they're buttering them up, setting the table, hoping that he'll take the bait and just fall into their trap. And so they said in verse 17, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Caesar being the Roman emperor, is it, is it lawful? Is it okay for us to pay tax to him? And Jesus said, well, he, he knew what they were about and um, called them hypocrites in verse 18. Then in verse 19 he said, show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they went and got a denarius and he said, whose image, whose picture is on that coin? Whose inscription? They said, Caesar. All right, here's a dollar bill. Whose picture's on the American dollar bill? George Washington. We put presidents or famous Americans on our coins and our paper money, correct? Well, that's what the Romans were due. Tony, are you a, you're a CPA, aren't you? Aren't you an accountant? Would you come up here a minute? Ah. See, he didn't know I was going to ask him to do this. So they have, hold that dollar bill if you wouldn't stretch that out. By the way, do you know that it's a federal crime to deface American money. Did you know that? Because this is actually produced by the Federal Reserve, by the government. Your banks don't produce this. The federal government does. So don't tell anybody what I'm getting ready to do. So here's half. The average American, this is what the government takes of your money every year. This is what you get left. But whose picture's on it? President. Right? Jesus said, bring me a denarius. That's what you pay the tax with. Whose picture's on it? Caesar. And then Jesus said, well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And give to God what belongs to God. Thank you, Tony. Give Tony a hand. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Paying taxes, God ordained government. We can debate how much should be paid in taxes, and we have opinions about that. But God ordained government and paying taxes, is, is there's nothing wrong with that, biblically. But Jesus didn't stop there. He silenced them. In fact, once he answered their question, they were, they were amazed and went away in silence because they didn't expect 
him to say what he said. He said, give to Caesar, render to Caesar. And that, he, that Greek word translated render literally means to, to, to pay back, to give back, to reward. Pay back to Caesar what is Caesar's. But pay back to God what belongs to God. Give back to God what you owe God. Now, what's the connection? We've put famous Americans, American presidents' pictures on our money. Every morning when you get out of bed, every time you look in a mirror, Every opportunity for you to see your reflection in water or or a piece of glass. There is an image stamped all over you. And when I look in the mirror, the image stamped on me is not Steve Hogg. When you look in the mirror, the image stamped on you is not your name. The inscription is not your name. In Genesis chapter 1, God said, Let us make man what? In whose image? In our, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. According to our likeness. And God created man in his own what? In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Every morning you get out of bed, the image of God is plastered all over you. When you go to bed at night, God's image is all over you. When you go to work, God's image is all over you. When you're making decisions, His image is... Is all over you. There's never a moment when God's image is not stamped over the totality of your being. God owns you not only because He created you and not only because Jesus died on the cross to redeem you and purchase you back from sin, but God owns you because when He created you, He put on you the stamp of His image. So why do we argue with God all the time about His rightful place and our true place in the universe? Why do we continue to argue with God about how to live? About our money, our stuff, Because if the whole universe and everything in it belongs to God, if He redeemed me, I'm not my own. I've been purchased with a price and His image is all over me. If I'm His, everything I have is also His. And like I said to start, at the very essence of most of our problems is bad decisions we make because we struggle to acknowledge God's rightful place 
and accept our true place in the scheme of things. And the more you argue with God, the more you're going to make bad decisions. So let's, let's pull this together. God's image is on us, and he says we're, we're to give to him what, what is his. All right, I'm his. What does that mean? How do I give to God what is his? Well, let me share some things with you. It begins by you and me giving ourselves to him. I have to give God my life. And, and that means a lot more than, well, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I commit myself to you. It means that every day of my life I live with the recognition that my existence is his. Paul in, in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 said that we're, we're to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, that, that I am to see my body, my life as a sacrifice to God, that, that my years on this earth, my existence is to be lived as a sacrifice to Him. And therefore, when God asks me to make specific sacrifices throughout my time on earth, that's not that big a deal in reality because I've already settled the issue. I already understand that my whole existence, my whole life is His, is a sacrifice to Him and His kingdom. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul was near the end of his life and and, and he said, I'm already being poured out as a, a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. Most of you understand that in the Old Testament, Jews would bring meat to the altar and offer it as a sacrifice. The drink offering was a different kind of offering. They would have a container filled with wine, bring it to the altar as an act of worship. They would pour that wine on the altar. And Paul says, my life, is like a container filled with wine, and the, the wine is the substance. It's, it's the years of my life. It's the days and months, the decades. It's the time that I have. And he said, as I live, it's gradually being poured out on the altar. And because I've lived longer than I have years in front of me, the time of my departure is at the hand. The container is almost empty. But Paul says, the way I view my life is is just like a a devout Jew would pour that wine on the altar as an offering. I am pouring out my life in service to Jesus Christ as a sacrifice, as a drink offering. And, And it's almost empty. I don't have many days, many years left, but I'm constantly pouring myself out on the altar of sacrifice, the altar of service, the altar of obedience to the Lord. So what does it mean to give to God the things that belong to God? It means to pour your life out to him but let's drill down a little deeper and talk about the things that make up our lives because it's one thing to say i'm giving my life as a sacrifice to god but that has to show up in day-to-day living it has to show up in practical things and and so not only do i give him my life but i have to give him my time do you dedicate your days do you dedicate your moments do you dedicate your time to god the psalmist cried out, Lord, teach us to number our days that we, that we may present to you a, a heart of wisdom. To number our days comes from a, a Hebrew word that means to weigh out, to measure, to count. And, and he's saying you need to get serious for a moment and realize that your days on earth are not limitless. They are finite 
You don't have forever here. You only have this amount of time. Use it wisely. Use it well. Because as that day passes, as that drop of wine is poured out, you can't put it back in the cup. Once it's out, it's out. Once it's passed, it's passed. Number your days. Because if you do that, if you take it seriously, then you're more likely to give God a heart, a life of wisdom. Paul in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 said that we are to be careful how we walk, how we live. Pay attention to it. So that we don't live as unwise men or as other verses in the Bible say like fools. And the truth is there are so many people in this world today who live not very smart making bad decision after bad decision after bad decision because they're not taking seriously that their days are numbered and they're not wanting to acknowledge God's rightful place and accept their true place. And so they fight with God and they live unwisely and they waste those days. They waste those years. God says instead live like somebody who is smart. Live like a wise man making the most of your time. Not only because your time is limited, but because the days in which you live, they're evil. This is a messed up sinful world. You do know that, don't you? And the problem is that too many of us live our limited amount of time in this messed up evil world influenced more by the evil in this world than by Christ. And the wise person lives in the midst of this messed up world influenced by Jesus, not the world. Your time, your talents, your skills, your abilities. First Corinthians, Paul wrote, since you are eager for spiritual gifts, and you're all excited about having skills and gifts and abilities, he said, you need to excel in those that build up the church. What, what, what are you doing to help this church? Let, let me flip it. Do you see this church as a place that exists primarily for your benefit or as a place where you as a believer and follower of Christ contribute to make a difference in this world, serve to make a difference in this world? Is it about you or is it about the kingdom of God? What are you doing to build up this church? Now, I benefit from this church. You benefit from this church. Anytime we're together as a family of faith and we study together, we worship together, we serve together, we grow together, we benefit, we prosper from that. But I am not to go through my life as a follower of Jesus Christ primarily looking for what does best for me. I am to look for where God has me so I can make a difference for the kingdom of God as I grow in Jesus and live for Jesus Christ. What are you doing to build up this church, your church? And he says, do it with eagerness and excel at it. Excel at it. Excel at it. What are you excelling at that helps this church? How do I give my life to Christ? How do I render to God what belongs to God? My life, my time, my talent, my skills, my service to build up the family of God. To build up the kingdom of God.
Not just take, but strengthen. Last year, um, one of the books I read was written by Larry Burkett and, and Ron Blue. They wrote it a few years ago called um, Your Money After the Big Five-0. Well, I'm, uh, I'm 55, right? Five, 55. You start forgetting at a certain point, okay? You have to think. And so that, that title just intrigued me. So oh, I'm going to read that book. And a lot of good stuff in that book, by the way, very practical. It's an easy read as well. So if you've never read it, you might want to pick it up. You can get it in paperback for about eight, nine, ten dollars um, But one of the things they encourage people to think about as you age in life is what they call rehirement instead of retirement. Because, you know, part of the American dream is to retire one day, going to move to Florida, going to move to the beach, going to move to the mountains, you know, you're going to move where the grandkids, going to retire and have you, you know, that's one of the big American dreams, going to retire and where you're going to be and what are you going to do. They, they, they encourage you to think about what they call rehirement rather than retirement. That, yeah, you've worked and you reach that point where you may retire from your career, et cetera, and depending on your financial situation, you've got different options. But they say, don't stop doing stuff. And maybe not even stop working completely. Rehirement. Once you retire, and some of you young ones say, well, that's so far off. But, hey, think about it because you'll be there one day. And Believe me, when you get there, you'll think, wow, I didn't think I'd get here this quick. <laughs> but it'll happen. Is perhaps consider getting a part-time job. Supplement your income. Do something that you enjoy. Do something that can make a difference that maybe before when you were, you know, going full speed in your career you weren't able to do, but now you have the time. You can work at something that pays you a whole lot less but actually contributes, makes a difference in some way that you feel good about. And in addition to economically supplementing your income, you do that so that you have more money to give to bless the kingdom of God and the causes of Christ in this world. In fact, Larry Burkett said, and this is a quote from that book, he said, my retirement will come in eternity. Well, he's experiencing that now. He said, my retirement will come in eternity. Foremost in your retirement planning then should be the prospect of standing before the Lord and giving an account for the way you have handled your life and your money. See, when I give my life to God, I want everything in my life to be used for God. So in, in our will, and our estate planning, if we die, it doesn't all go to our kids. Some of it goes to support missions. Some of it goes to this church. I tithe and give beyond the tithe while I'm alive. I'm definitely doing it after I'm dead. Besides, you do know your kids will spend most of it in about a year, don't you? You do know that, don't you? They will. I'm not saying don't give them anything. But serve Christ once you're already in heaven. So if you've given your life to Christ, that excites you. If you think that's a silly idea, 
Maybe you haven't really surrendered your life and all the stuff that's a part of your life to him. Because it's his, not mine. I get that. Do you get that? My my money, see, that's my my, my I can't give I can't I cannot give my life to God without giving my money to God. Now, some of you, once you figured out I was talking about money, you started feeling a little bit guilty. Others of you, when I started talking about money, you started getting a little bit resistant or defensive. Well, that indicates you're still fighting that battle about God's rightful place and your true place in the scheme of the universe. And you think you own it when in reality you don't. The Bible teaches that even your ability to make money is a gift from God. The earth is the Lord, all that it contains, the world, those who dwell in it. That's me. If God owns me, he owns my stuff. Haggai 2.8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord. Tithing, giving 10% of my income to the Lord's work and giving beyond that is simply a recognition of that reality. Let me wrap this up because I'm out of time. Do you know there are millions of people in this world who live without electricity in developing nations, third world countries, and therefore they don't have refrigeration, they don't have indoor lights, there's a man, Alfredo Moser, who came up, who perfected this idea of what's called today the Moser light. You take a, a clear plastic bottle, maybe one about two liters, get it really clean, you fill it with water and, and put some um, eau de kill algae, uh, somebody help me, um, 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 uh, bleach in it, just a little bit of bleach to kill algae so the water will stay clear. You cut an opening in the ceiling in the roof and um, you stick the bottle up you know, put tire pitch, seal it so it won't leak. And at least during the daylight, when the sun is shining, the sun hits that and through the water it refracts, it magn- and it lights the room. Isn't that ingenious? And there are poor people, millions of them, millions of them in places like the Philippines, Bangladesh, Argentina, who today at least have some light in their homes during the day because of what he came up with. And there are organizations that are mass producing these now and putting them in homes of really poor people in these poor nations. He makes practically nothing off of it. In fact, he still drives a 1974 car. His lack of making money is not because he can't, it's because he's chosen not to. Here's what he says. Alfredo says, it is a divine light. God gave the sun to everyone and light is for everyone. You know, a couple weeks ago I I, I mentioned, uh, you know, Rick Warren giving does reverse tithing, lives on 10% and gives away 90% because he's made enough money, a lot of money. And some people said, well, if I made as much money as he had, I'd do that too. No, 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 no. Listen, if you won't do it on what you already make, you wouldn't do it if you made that kind of money. If you won't tithe on what you already make, you wouldn't be. Listen, Jesus said, if you're faithful in the little, you'll be faithful in the much. But if you're not faithful in the little, you won't be faithful in the much. How many people do you know who are rich that give away 90% of what they make anyway? See, it's, it's not about how much. It's about heart. It's about understanding who God is and who we are. You remember Moses? 
wandering in the wilderness after fleeing Egypt, went up on the mountain, had that experience with God at the burning bush. And part of that conversation, God said, Moses, what do you have in your hand? And he said, a staff, the shepherd's staff, throw it down. He threw it down. It became a snake. God said, pick it up. It became a staff again, but it became the staff of God, the rod of God. He stood at the Red Sea, held it up, and God parted the waters. And the stuff in your hand until you lay it down and give it to God is like a poisonous snake. And and if you're feeling guilty today or or you're being defensive about this message, stuff becomes poison spiritually to us until we lay it down and give it to God. And then he says, pick it up now and use it for my purpose, the way I tell you to use it. But as long as you're in control of it, it's a poisonous snake spiritually. So what are you holding on to today that you haven't already laid down at the feet of Jesus? I want to give you a challenge. I hope you'll accept it. I want to challenge everyone in the room to obey God at least one time. I want to challenge each and every one of us to obey God at least one time. I'm going to challenge each and every one of us on December 8th, the first weekend after the Thanksgiving holiday, after that weekend. I'm going to challenge everyone to obey God and say, God, I recognize the world and me and everything I have belongs to you, and I'm going to give a tithe of my next paycheck on that day, whether I've ever done it in my life or not. Try obeying God one time. And see what it's like. You don't want to go through life arguing with God about who He is and who you are. Life's too precious to live like that. And He loves you too much. Too much. Albert Schweitzer was a theologian and a medical missionary to Africa who died in 1965. He had a a good friend who operated a a restaurant in London, England. And this this restaurant owner was a Christian. And one of the ways he would show kindness to ministers, to clergy, was he never allowed any clergy person to pay for his meal at that restaurant. It's just his way of saying thank you for their service. One day, a minister was standing at the counter talking to him while this proprietor was making change for a paying customer. And he noticed in the cash register a six-inch nail. There among the coins and the paper pounds, the bills, a six-inch nail. And he asked him why he kept a nail in his cash register. And this Christian proprietor said, I keep it with my money to remind me of the the price that Christ paid for my salvation and of what I owe him in return. (laughs) 
Jesus, should we pay taxes? And Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But make certain you're giving to God what belongs to God. Because after all, it's all His. I'm His. You're His. And all our stuff is His. Stop arguing with Him. Let's stand.